0: Welcome to One Stop Shop, a weekly podcast that helps ambitious e commerce entrepreneurs learn from the best. Brought to you by Convergio. To learn more about managing all of your e commerce tools, channels, and strategies from one dashboard, visit Convergio.com. Today, we talk to Sam Sepke, CEO at Kings Row Coffee.
1: There are so many great coffee companies out there, but there's only one company we know of that takes into consideration how our palate and our environment affect the taste of our coffee. King's Row Coffee pioneered what they refer to as the Bordeaux-inspired blend, to make a coffee that would taste good just about anywhere. Then it was time to convey that value to the online buyer, who had no way of tasting the difference from looking at product images and descriptions. Today, we talk with Sam Sepke, CEO at Kings Row Coffee, about convincing prospects to trust your claims and why it's important to be persistent when soliciting sales. Hey, Sam, how are you? Hey,
2: I'm well, thanks. How are you?
1: Good, good. Thank you. All right, Sam, for our listeners who don't know anything about Kings Row Coffee, can you tell us a little bit about it and what makes it different from other coffee companies?
2: Sure, sure. Absolutely. Uh, there's a few things. First and foremost, we are the only company that recognizes that coffee is not consumed in a vacuum, meaning that we're not all drinking it black in our kitchen at sea level without you know, cream or sugar, without a meal. And there are quite a few very common settings and environments and circumstances that will affect coffee flavor, either through um, distorting the brewing process or affecting the brewing process, or more commonly by affecting our palate. It's a very, very common thought in the wine world. You know, you can make a very good bottle of wine taste over the hill if it's paired with the wrong item simply because uh, taste is not static. It's relative. Our palate measures everything in sequence, what came before it, what's coming after. So all we recognize is that there are different environments that are going to affect our coffee experience. And ultimately our goal is to make sure that everyone has the perfect cup of coffee wherever they are whatever they're doing. Of course, there's some subjectivity in that, but we, um, we like to think that we're doing a pretty good job making sure people have options and making sure that the coffee tastes fantastic no matter where you are. So that is the first part. And the, the second part, the way that we're able to achieve that, and I'm sure we'll get into it, is our methodology is, uh, is pretty unique. So we only do blends. And the way we got there is uh, we started with the question, how can we achieve the most complex flavorful coffee? And you know, to go back to wine, uh, unlike wine where you can get uh, uh, have a noble wine or uh, you know a really complete bouquet with a single vintage with one grape, in our opinion, it's just characteristically not achievable in any single origin. So it has to be a blend. Traditional blends are sort of a workaround or shortcut, kind of like a crock pot of coffee. So what we do differently is we actually use what we call a Bordeaux inspired roasting method, where we uh, treat each bean in the blend, individually to a custom temperature and time interval to achieve a very specific flavor profile. Essentially, it's a recipe. And then we blend those beans in very precise and unequal portions. So I know that was a lot. I'm happy to go into more detail. But those are really the two things that we do differently than any other coffee company.
0: Mm -hmm. So what I'm hearing then is that you've perfected coffee in any given circumstance for humans across the world.
2: Well, we can't guarantee any circumstance if There's one that pops up that we haven't covered. We want to tackle it. But at the very moment, we believe that we have a coffee for every environment.
0: What is the most obscure environment you have made coffee to be perfect in?
2: I'd say the one that, or the two that people don't think about are in really terrestrial, earthy settings and at the beach. Mm -hmm. At the beach, the briny air, those salt ions in the air, actually deaden the palate. And it's often why you crave really bold foods at the beach. So it actually affects our ability to detect the true flavor. So that's one. And then the other is in these, I'll say, barnyard type settings. If you catch my drift with a very, very strong smell, any earthy settings, most of taste is actually smell. And there's a big difference between how something tastes on your palate versus how it tastes climbing up your sinus cavity and registering it. So, you know, the same exact substance can actually have a different aromatic profile depending on those two things. So your favorite coffee may have a consistent smell orthonasally, so you could be at the beach and smell the coffee and be like, wow. But once sipped, the taste you experience really depends on the reference point of your palate, which can be drastically altered by external aromas, if that makes sense.
1: Does that apply to... Hot coffee and hot and cold coffee, basically, like iced coffee, the same principles? Um,
2: it, it applies to anything you're tasting anywhere. Um, you know, it's, it's what we're absolutely sure of, and I can give you a, a very easy do-it-yourself experiment, you know, so you can see yourself. And then once you do it, you're like, wow, that's obvious. You know, everyone's brushed their teeth and tasted orange juice or something like that. <laughs> um, people don't realize, but our palate is so sensitive and um, it's so Delicate and referential. So, so many things will alter our palate's reference point. So, at the beach, our reference point is affected by the salt ions in the air, or you know, out sailing or, or, or whatever you're doing in those earthy settings. Very strong smells will affect your palate's reference point. Yeah, so uh, an experiment that we often encourage people to try that really just drives the point home is you know, have a glass of cold water handy and a slice of lemon. Sip the water a bunch, really swish it around your mouth, cover all all of your mouth, and then bite into the lemon, uh, the lemon wedge, you know, suck on the juices, make sure you swish it around as well. Taste the water again. I guarantee the water is going to taste like you added a tablespoon of sugar. And it's, you know, the water didn't change, just our palate's reference point. Compared to the acid of the lemon, the water tastes very sweet. So that that's a test that we often use to kind of drive the point home that sort of, re-education on the palate, you know, the same thing can taste very different under different circumstances.
1: Fascinating.
2: Yeah. People tend to think of our palate like a piece of, um, like laboratory equipment, like a thermometer that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, will tell it, give you an accurate reading relative to some absolute scale. Whereas with our palate, it's not going to tell us, you know, this item has a pH of 2.4. This item has a pH of 7.1. It's going to just tell us is something more sour or less sour than the thing we just tasted beforehand.
1: All right. So next time I bake a cookie and it's burnt and it tastes like crap, I can just basically just blame it on the point of reference of the person eating it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's not my fault.
2: (laughs) No, it's not your fault. It's my palate. And all our senses work that way. You know, if you go into a dark room and then walk out into daylight after being in that room for hours, there's going to be an adjustment. Um, you know, all our senses are relative, you know, and, and sort of work in sequence. What did we do before? What are we doing after? Nothing's really absolute or, or really accurate relative to some absolute scale.
0: How do you, okay, I'm going to sidetrack actually, Sam. I'm going to jump in a second. How do you yeah. not suffer from the curse of knowledge? Do you know, Have you? are you familiar with that phrase, like in the business world? Uh, no, I'm not. It's basically the fact that, it sounds like you're a genius when when it comes to this stuff. I feel completely inferior right now that I'm still drinking coffee out of my like eight year old coffee mate thing. And I just am happy with like, a local <laughs> roaster and that type of thing. And I'm, I'm wondering like, you know so much about it and it's really super interesting and I'm sure it makes your product like amazing, but I'm curious how much of that needs to translate to your audience and how much of it, is it hard for you to like identify with the baseline of, I need to sell coffee to my audience versus I'm a coffee genius. Does that make more sense?
2: Uh, It absolutely does. Let me just put out a disclaimer. I am not a coffee genius. I am a good messenger. Chef Shelton is the coffee genius. Okay. Yeah. So can't take credit for that, you know, as much as I'd like to. And the second thing I'm, uh, you know, in explaining this, this isn't what we put in front of our customer, you know, this is sort of explaining how we achieve what we think is the perfect cup. And uh, ultimately what matters is, is it the perfect cup for the customer? So there's not as much as an explanation. People want what they like. Of course, personal preference comes into play, but we believe that if we give them a product we think will be perfect there, given, you know, Chef Shelton's expertise and and knowledge and training, that the coffee will speak for itself. I tend to be verbose, as you've probably already noticed. We really just like to let the coffee speak for itself. So, unfortunately, we are in an age now where, and, and it's been like this for for, you know, at least a few years now, where the focus with coffee isn't on consumption as much as it is appreciation. So you actually have a really inquisitive customer base. People are asking questions. Where are we sorted from? You know, how is it prepared? You know, so we don't even have to sort of put out all of this information up front. People often reach out, and they often reach out after they try it as well. So it's kind of nice, the, the, the age we're in coffee-wise just because, like like I said, the customers are so inquisitive, and it also helps that coffee really is, maybe besides tea, coffee is the like the last affordable luxury. You know, as much as I'd like to, I can't go buy a Monet or, or a Ferrari, but everyone, regardless of budget, can experience coffee in its highest form and its highest quality, at least on occasion. So it's one of those things where people are really valuing, a, you know, a higher quality cup, and you uh, you know, you may well enjoy your local roaster. You know, everyone has their own preference. But in our experience, when most people try our coffee, they're a bit surprised by the complexity, uh, the flavor, the finish, and it sort of speaks for itself.
1: All right, so I want to take you back a little bit. Back in time, that is. Angels like, what was your life like before this business? You did mention that the chef is a Chef Shelton, right? And... Uh, He is the coffee genius. So it sounds like you are the business genius then in that case. And how did you two meet? Like, how did you end up in this business of coffee?
2: Yeah, uh, I appreciate genius. I will take that, (laughs) even though it's not true. Um,
1: you be a genius at something, right?
2: (laughs) So basically, my background is actually with a boutique investment firm. We're out of New Hampshire. And basically, it's kind of like what VC was in the 90s. We are looking to build companies from the ground floor, even from the point of uh, of an idea. And we met Craig, who's also a New Hampshire guy. We met Craig, and um, he told us all about his product, his process, and the philosophy behind it. And even though, as you're well aware, the coffee market, especially coffee market, is more and more saturated, there's no one else doing What he came up with. And so it was a really cool opportunity to get into something that we thought had a lot of potential and that we can get behind and be passionate about. So that was a few years ago. That was in 2013. And, um, you know, truthfully, before then, you know, drank Starbucks every day, didn't know much about coffee. But I will say that once you try, and it's not only, we don't offer the only great cup of coffee, obviously, but once you really get into the world of high quality craft coffee, there's a no turning back, in my opinion. You can't go back to, the, to drinking what you used to.
0: All right, so it's clear that you take coffee seriously. Let's start to translate this then into the area that you're in charge of. The thing I'm curious about is you have something that's so focused on taste, like you said, but if I'm just like an online consumer, I stumble across your website, I can't taste it through the screen, obviously. What methods do you find work best for selling a product like coffee or something that you really should experience but can't via online?
2: Yeah, it's really about the narrative and storytelling and making sure that you offer products that will allow people to sort of, you know, dip their toe in the water without committing. And then uh, if they do like it or they find a favorite, they could come back and get, you know, whatever they want, whenever they want. So on the product side, we have a sampler. You can try every one of our blends, a small quantity and see what you like. You know, you may live in Denver and love the coastal blend. Personal preference comes into play. And then... In terms of getting the story out, um, we've found the most effective way is is press, especially when you're on a budget. So we've been really fortunate; we've gotten some uh, really big press and um in in publications where people who are in our target audience, people who want a high quality product, people who question where stuff uh, the stuff they're drinking and eating comes from, will frequent you know Food and Wine, Wine Spectator, New York Times, uh, Inc. Magazine, places like that, and the focus then after that is obviously retention, but that's really the way we've gotten in front of a lot of people. And, you know, once people hear our story, a lot of them are willing to try it out.
0: I'm kind of unsatisfied with the answer to a certain extent, because part of that, it seems like you're not able to control, like you can't necessarily control the press. What about the things that are within your realm as the owner? I can influence this. I can build trust, whatever it may, it might be. What, things or strategies methods have you found that work well that you actually have control over
2: oh that's uh, our our e-commerce experience you know so yeah we we don't know what people will put out about us but we control our own marketing campaign and we control our checkout experience so we really pride ourselves on above and beyond customer service personal outreach not just a, a bot or anything like that and then our retention is i'll say politely annoying we like to stay in front of our customers, uh, constantly offer them deals, and uh, and update them on, on new things. But, you know, we, we don't have a brick and mortar, so a lot of our uh, retail business, or most of it, relies on our e-commerce experience.
0: Can you go into some mm-hmm. of the, the nitty-gritty with that? As
2: far as what we're using or how we use it?
1: Um, yeah, actually,
2: go ahead, but, yeah.
1: That- no, so I just wanted to say that, you know, the nitty gritty that uh, Jeff is asking, I'm, I'm also interested in knowing more about that because you just said something that was very interesting. You said being politely annoying. <laughs> and and I think that's that's a fine line, but that a lot of businesses have to walk, obviously. But it's also, I, I personally feel like it's very important to be pushy with sales. Like no one is going to hear your story the first time and go, okay, I'm going to open my wallet and buy this product.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, I... I What we tell our people is don't stop contacting people, you know, just because they're not answering and always be polite. But we will engage with our customers extremely politely. Uh, We'll give a too long, don't read kind of explanation. And if they want to get into it, they can. But we like to stay in front of our customers weekly, whether it's about a deal, an event we're doing or, or an update. But, uh, yeah, I mean, people often become discouraged by no response or, you know, no conversion. But you'd be surprised. I mean, I've seen retail customers we have in the pipeline from 2015 that are having unsubscribed and, you know, are opening emails. And then they ordered two years later because of some sort of update. And then they're back in the pipeline and you can focus on retaining them. I'd say that's one of the biggest things that discourages people is not having a response. But until they say until they unsubscribe or reject you, there's no reason not to keep reaching out and being polite about it.
1: I think part of it is being is not liking rejection, but I think the big part of it, or at least what I'm hearing from a lot of other businesses and other entrepreneurs kind of feedback they're giving us is that they are afraid mostly of getting a negative kind of feedback where the customer is so put off by that communication or that persistence that they end up forming a really negative opinion about the business and feeling like this business is so pushy and so annoying that I'm never, ever going to buy from them. And I don't want to hear from them. I'm just going to unsubscribe. I don't want to hear anything from you. I don't want to get any coupons from you. I want nothing to do with your product. So I guess, you know, what I'm, what I'm curious about is, and, and I, I absolutely agree with you about persistence when it comes to communication, but how does a business walk the fine line where you're pushy, you know, enough to sell, but not so pushy that you get that kind of reaction, that jolt to the customer?
2: I mean, for us personally, you just have to look at what the response is. The overwhelming majority of people don't mind the uh, the check-ins or the, even the personal emails. If someone unsubscribes, you know, it's it's sort of like big whoop. You know, unless they're going to go out and actively talk negatively about your company, it's there's no tangible harm. But that's where the polite comes in. You know, it's 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 tough to do that to someone that's overwhelmingly polite and uh and and friendly i guess we've just come to terms that you know the the net it's net good for us and people have unsubscribed and they'll probably continue to but they have the option to they have the option to never hear from us again they have the option to re-enlist but you know we we sort of respect we respect their rights uh or their you know their desire not to hear from us once they unsubscribe we won't keep pestering them because then it's clear hey I don't want this I'm not interested you know but as long as they're you know opted in we'll continue to reach out you know and I can't say it's the same across the board in e-commerce but for us the feedback feature we have using your software is you know overwhelmingly positive the only negative reviews are usually tied to like order hiccups or stuff that slips through the cracks not nothing to do with our engagement or our product. product, in fact, the customer service side and the engagement is one of the things people cite most, if not more than the coffee, is how attentive and polite and personable you know our approach to customer interaction is.
0: Uh, to pivot a little bit, to change gears a little, how do you feel like the founder's passion or interest in a product affects the success of creating something within a niche business?
2: It's really, really significant. I mean, his passion is what sold us. It's tough to sell something or enlist people to sell something or get behind something that you're not passionate about. And you, you can't fake passion. You know, you can tell if someone's passionate about something and then you can buy into it and it's almost contagious. So it's from the top down, I'd say.
0: So with that, I mean, to counter then, you what I'm hearing is you don't think someone that isn't passionate, they would not be able to do it as well? Absolutely. I mean, think
2: mm-hmm. about anything in your daily life. You know, doing two tasks, one you're passionate about and one you're not, you know, you get excited about even the mundane because you see the end goal, you know, without passion in the equation, it's really tough to sort of hold that fire every day, you know, and attack it, attack it with the same vigor every day. So, yeah, at least for me, from where I'm standing, I would say that there would be a big difference between being passionate about a project or a goal or a product and not being in terms of, you know, end result and how successful you are.
1: I mean, I agree with you that having the passion or interest in the product definitely makes a huge difference. And like you said, it's very difficult to fake passion if you're really not into it. It's it's any try to seem like you're into it. It's going to come off as phony and and forced. But it's interesting that you say that because a lot of businesses nowadays uh, or actually a lot of entrepreneurs in e-commerce nowadays are focusing on the model of dropshipping. And some of them are even creating their own products. But what they're doing is they're looking at all of these niche categories that, that they think are profitable. And they either source or create a product that is currently trending or is easy to sell basically within that niche and easy to make profit off of. And a lot of them are actually pretty successful if we were to define success with the amount of money that they're making. So what's your take on that? Because it seems to me like, yes, it's great to have passion, but then it's also very important to have probably even more important, in my opinion, at least to have knowledge of what you're selling and a good business sense and a willingness to learn. And it might be possible to succeed in a business that you're not particularly passionate about, a product you're not particularly passionate about if you have these other factors. How do you feel about that?
2: No, I agree. But the, the, uh, I mean, the passion is still there. They're passionate about success. So maybe I'll walk it back and say, without passion in the equation, whether it's what you're doing or what your end goal is, sort of drives the ship. But the other things you pointed out are extremely important. Um, you know, sound business mind, going after a market that, you know, there, there's potential in. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it would be a balance of, of those three things, I would say. Obviously, you can't be reckless. You can't just be passionate. You can't just be logical. There needs to be a balance. And that's usually where your team comes in, you know, and sorts of rounds out the skill set.
0: I can imagine that coffee in general has got to be somewhat of a a particular market or people have their tastes and that type of thing like you alluded to earlier. And you talked about some of the different ways that you've been able to gain new customers and retain customers. What are some pain points that you happen to be feeling, whether it is just the kind of the e-commerce side of things or if it's specifically within the coffee space itself that you haven't been able to quite wrap your head around or or have a solution to?
2: Shipping, I'd say, is... One of the first things that come to mind, people. There are so many options out there today that um, people likely can find something they don't like locally. So shipping has been something that we're constantly working with and offering deals on. You know, we offer subscriptions to kind of get rid of all those costs and offer savings that way. But shipping is probably the biggest thing on the e-commerce side, and then just more broadly speaking, touched on it before the sort of re-education aspect we we have a story but it's kind of a long story and there's uh, a bunch of different elements going on and when people are inquisitive it's great but it can be a lot of information to throw at them at once if they're not and if they're not uh, really that interested all
1: right so tell us about the philanthropic projects that Kings Row Coffee is involved in, with because when we looked at your website we did notice one thing which we thought was interesting and we would love to hear about it from your mouth basically <laughs>
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's called the Salamta Family Project and it's based in Ethiopia and um, basically I'll get I'll get into, you know, the ways you can contribute and what we do for them, but Ethiopia is there's about 100 million people. 50% of those people are under 18. And then of that, you know, 50 or so million, 10% are orphaned or abandoned. So you're looking at, you know, around 5 million kids that are orphaned. Basically, the choice is orphanage or on the streets, and often the orphanage isn't a much better option. You know, a lot of them don't take kids over eight. Uh, they don't have uh, ample resources to support the kids. Uh, they'll, they'll tear siblings apart. Most importantly, they don't really create a family environment that kids can rely on or return to. So, no family equals, uh, you know, no safety net, no education, a host of other problems, prone to exploitation, etc. And uh, pretty much, the children are left to raise themselves. So. Uh, long story short, what the Salamta Family Project does is it seeks to create stable, what they call forever families, which are sort of bolstered with a, a plethora of resources and, you know, educational, social, psychological. So basically the way it works is they partner with the local government agencies and they sort of identify families and ind- individuals that are in greatest need. And then they unite orphan children with often displaced and marginalized women who have kids of their own who they lost. And, uh, and create this sort of stable caring family. So they take, you know, different people from different backgrounds, terrible circumstances, and unite them into a family unit. And they even go so, as, so far as having a prevention program in which they'll provide resources to families that are at risk so they can, you know, try to prevent that. And then those resources I talked about, the families are given psychological, social, medical, educational, and developmental support. And the result really is uh, a family, you know, it's something they can go back to, you know, the goal is, to give them the best chance to be successful into adulthood. And it also keeps the kids in Ethiopia. It has such a unique culture. Uh, The entire staff of the project is Ethiopian national. Hopefully they can give back and help others in Ethiopia. Um, So the way that we help with the project is, I'm sure you saw our Salamta blend. And uh, as most people know, coffee is a very cultural experience in Ethiopia. It's the birthplace of coffee. And so we thought it fitting to create a, an Ethiopian blend that we can raise money to contribute to the project. But we actually go a step further. The pouches that the coffee arrives in are hand-stitched mm-hmm. by the community mothers. And we have some cool new designs coming out. So not only is money going to the project, but it's actually going to the mothers as well. So it's it's a source of income, too. So $5 of every bag goes to the slum the family project, and the mothers directly.
1: That's wonderful. How can our listeners learn more about your coffee, first of all, and the product set that you offer, the science behind it, and this cause that you just talked to us about?
2: It's all on kingsrowcoffee.com, and I, as I said, we like to engage with customers and, and people that are, just have questions, so uh, my email is sam at kingsrowcoffee.com. Always happy to have a, a conversation about coffee. You
1: are literally the first guest to give their email address on the podcast like that.
2: Is that <laughs> is funny. that a bad thing? Yeah, I mean we, we, love, it. we love
1: It is not yeah. a bad thing. Most people are kind of most CEOs are kind of secretive about their email address, so so
2: it's pretty cool that oh, you're, no. open, you're open I to mean, get it. all my info. Yeah, all all of our team, all of our info is on our site. We like to speak with speak with our customers and try to connect with anyone about coffee.
1: Yeah, and I don't mean that, by the way, in, in a negative, I'm not describing other guests in a negative way that they did not share their emails, I'm just, I'm just pointing out the fact that it's it caught me by surprise. Most people will just share their, you know, website and the main social and, and that's that's about it. But it was really a pleasure to talk to you and to learn more about the coffee, it definitely made me feel like grabbing one of them as soon as possible. I am a big coffee drinker backstory, I'm definitely not a tea person, I'm a coffee person. And it was Happy great to it. To <laughs> Great chatting. Thank you. Thank great
2: you, chatting Sam. with you too. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks,
0: Alien. One Stop Shop is a production of Convergio. Learn how to manage all of the marketing tools, channels, and strategies that you need from one dashboard by visiting Convergio.com. This podcast was produced in partnership with Come Alive Creative for help building, improving, and marketing your e-commerce store. Visit ComeAliveCreative.com. To listen to more episodes or to give us a rating, please visit Convergio.com forward slash iTunes.